Hello, and welcome to the Cinema Boost Podcast, Episode 9. Uh, we'll be talking today about the new movie, Tomorrowland, uh, which I saw over the weekend and Colin saw just today. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> this is very last minute. Uh, Madison was going to be with us this week, and we were going to do a Newsweek, but uh, unfortunately her laptop... Uh, Decided to pack up, and uh, it's at the repair shop, so we're doing this instead. Uh, but I think we can get an hour's conversation out of Tomorrowland, don't you? I think it's going to be very easy now. I did not realize this a few hours ago, but yes. Although if you want the condensed version, I think you were right that the Bob Chipman review does cover a lot of... Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. I, I suppose we should preface this by by saying, yeah. Um, Bob Chipman's review of uh, Tomorrowland on moviebob.blogspot.com is uh, uh, is excellent and covers a lot of ground. Um, and if we if we miss something, it'll probably end up here. But I I suspect I'm going to be using a couple of points he lightly touched on as jumping off points for for discussion but uh but let's start off with uh what what did you think colin what's your snap review (laughs) uh gosh um absolutely nothing worked about this movie structurally (laughs) um Thematically, it was hit and miss, and just in moment-to-moment details and, like, dialogue and stuff, it was hit and miss. One thing would make me go, yay, and one thing would make me go, ugh, that was dumb. And (laughs) I spent a lot of time in this movie laughing and sometimes, like, just at the movie or at the movie, like, on a meta level, like, in the way it was engaging with tropes and Things. It reminded me of when I, a few weeks ago, saw Clouds of Sils Maria, because I spent a lot of that movie giggling at weird stuff, too, and probably annoying people. Um, <laughs> but, so, uh, yeah, is that a snap review? No, no, that's <laughs> that's that's pretty good. Um, I'd, I'd, I don't know if we... We're, we're, we're going to be venturing into spoilers very quickly, I yeah. suspect. Well, uh, my, but my it, next... dra- it drags out so many of its reveals for so long that I don't feel too bad, <laughs> to well, be honest. Well, Bob Chipman's saying that this was a one two-hour first act was exactly my thought, and so I wondered if I accidentally saw him say that somewhere before I went to see it because I had the exact same thought. Yeah, no, well, and and I was actually going to say something kind of similar, which is because I think I mentioned to you off the air at one point that I I loved the final montage. You did, yeah. Um, with um, Especially with Michael Giacchino's score, which was one of the better things about the movie. Uh, uh, montage of, of lots of new, um, of admirably, you know, multicultural mm-hmm. um a group of of new sort of inductees uh being being selected and all finding themselves uh in the in in the Elysian field of uh <laughs> um in front of Tomorrowland it, it's it's beautiful stuff but it felt like the opening to a movie I would much rather be seeing yeah i wasn't i wasn't as taken with that scene as 
you were, and then after it was o- over, I read the review, I was like, oh yeah, Stefan did mention that he liked that montage or whatever, and I'm just, the, the, the clearly front and center multiculturalism of that whole sequence is both its wonderful thing and it's, well, then what about the rest of your casting for the actual movie? It just kind of, yeah, it's self-defeating sort of. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's always going to be that's always going to be the awkward thing. Uh, if even if you try to glorify the more positive aspects of what we might broadly refer to as a pre-civil rights era of American culture, even if you try to just focus on the positive aspects. You're always going to have that looming over you, and you'd be you'd be better off not trying. But, but there we are. And I I I don't think Chipman said this in in as many words, but I think a lot of the problem um, with its philosophizing partly has to do with the framing. Um, in that, a fair amount of it is coming from George Clooney. You know, he's still an old white man. <laughs> Uh, dispensing right. this this wisdom um, to us, uh, particularly a, a brand of wisdom that that glorifies a um, a period in the past as 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 being a more promising time, and and that framing that coming from him, it, it does if not necessarily taint the message, it does increase the elevation of my eyebrows by. Certain well, number yeah, of well, degrees. Yeah, I, mean, I, I always so. say, look at the message, not the messenger. But, 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 Clooney being cast, a white man being cast, it does become part of the message or part of the art of the film. Yeah, exactly. Because, because if, if you're if you're doing a work of fiction, then yeah. you as the writer have have absolute control over right. who the messenger is. Um, and you could so easily have put those words even into the mouth of the of the protagonist, <laughs> the, the supposed teenage, teenage protagonist, the, and it went, the, it went, the well, yeah, no, that was that was something that was very deftly pointed out by Chipman. Yeah, that the <laughs> it ends up being more Clooney's story than than hers. But i i like the, I like to yeah. think, apropos of nothing, that that Clooney's booby trapped house is. The house that the Home Alone kid kind of dreams of. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it seemed the movie seemed curiously to be built as, as much as it sort of uh, loves the space race era, and as much as it's clearly set in the present day. Um, the the cultural touchstones to which it owes a lot of influence uh, seem to be very firmly stuck in the eighties in a lot of ways. Well, I, th- I think Chipman referred to it yeah. as a tween Terminator thing, in that it's a sort of road trip movie with a robot. And uh, but but then but then you also get the sort of Home Alone element uh, with the booby trapped house. You get the Back to the Future element with them reaching a speed with the Eiffel Tower rocket to g- get through the punch through the dimensions and just like I. Ah, I mean, I, uh, yeah, and I. I'm, I'm, we're, I'm, I swear this is probably, I, well, I'm, I'm not sure enough of it to swear, but I'm, I'm, I'm hoping this is the last time I'm going to make reference to, to the Bob Chipman review. But there, there is something else he said in passing, which was, um, he, he, he had been intrigued by the potential premise of Disney Presents Bioshock. <laughs> yeah. In, in, in the idea of, of 
a, another a, a very different sort of take on coming upon um, a failed. We, well, well, we'll talk about later whether this is fair or not. A failed objectivist utopia, um, and having to work your way around and try to figure out how it failed. <laughs> Just to pass up the Terminator comic, because I did, that thought did occur to me. And because I saw the machine yesterday, as I told you, um, I have to say, this is my, this, this, this movie does have my favorite lady Termin- Terminator now. <laughs> little little <laughs> Athena. <laughs> that was, that was one of the first moments where I was laughing kind of with kind of at the movie was when they said the girl's name is Athena. It's like, Oh, see what you did there. Yeah. (laughs) If if I can say something like unreservedly positive, I did like the joke that got sort of planted and then revealed that she was pretending to shut down. Yeah. No, no. Just to shut her up. I loved, I loved that gag though. Yeah. That was genuinely funny. I, I, I love, like I said at the top, I loved a lot of little details like that. And then there were a lot of yeah. details that were dumb. It was just a mismatch of great ideas and dumb stuff in a terrible, terrible story structure. Yes, no, agreed. Yeah. Well, and, and apart, quite apart from anything else, again, uh, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, the fact that we take so long to get to the failed utopia and start exploring that instead of just talking about what happened there. I was looking at my watch many, many times during this movie, not because necessarily that I was bored, but because lately when I go to the movies, I do that because I want to see where's the first act, where's the second, like, just for structure. But I did yeah. it so much more in this movie than I have before, knowing that I'm thinking that I was going to be safe, you know, not miss anything. So it's literally an hour until she gets to George Clooney's house. Yeah. Yeah. In a two hour movie. It's Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> there was a lot of there was a lot of pointless delay there. And I Okay. So so explain to me because I honestly couldn't follow what Hugh Laurie's deal was. Uh Governor <laughs> Nix. Oh, is that a Nixon reference? Is that some sort of weird archaism, too? I just, I have no idea. Um, so, anyway, Hugh Laurie. Okay, first off, why does he banish young Clooney? What? Uh, because Clooney invented the machine that predicted the the end of the world, and thus, um, because of the sort of self-fulfilling prophecy thing, um, which I actually kind of, liked it yeah, was at least an interesting but, idea well, we'll talk more about um, that. And, um and yeah we will i, I look forward to that but yeah. um but uh but yeah no, because he did that and sort of brought down their utopia with it presumably um he's banished i i don't know how much sense that actually makes i think but... that makes no sense so let me restate it for us um <laughs> okay so yeah okay so i think they said that he was yeah because they said he was banished because one of his inventions went wrong and so and obviously or, well so no that, that he invented something he shouldn't have i think was okay. was something closer to it yeah thank you yeah so Clooney was banished and i don't remember his character's name because he was invent, he invented something he shouldn't have but then hugh laurie th- apparently th- Think, does he honestly believe that he shouldn't have invented this? I think he does, right? 
Because it's di- because if it's he shouldn't have invented say. it, why does Hugh Laurie then keep using the machine and purposely, purposefully using the machine to broadcast Doomsday into everyone's minds? We'll talk more about that. I, w- I was a, I was a little bit forgiving towards that plot point just because when they started talking about inventing things he shouldn't have, like what that turned out to be was was better than what I was thinking because. Mm. Yeah. I wasn't thinking anything anything specific, but I was definitely sort of afraid, but to some extent, for one of what, how did how did Tony Stark put it? The the man was not meant to meddle medley. Yeah. Um, Ex- yeah. Exactly. I was, I, was, I was kind of afraid. I was kind of afraid it was going to go in that direction. Yeah, that is um, that is a relief that it didn't go there. And and the you know thematic resonance of the doomsday predictor, not a doomsday machine, but a doomsday predictor. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I, I thought that was interesting. Um, in the way that it relates to the plot, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Or or was he... I, I, I'm reaching here. I'm just trying to figure out if maybe I, it makes sense and I'm missing it. it did, Reach away. Did, did Hugh Laurie banish George Clooney because he was afraid George Clooney was going to ruin his evil plan to broadcast... A dystopia into everyone's mind if once he figured out that that's what he was doing and so at the end there when George Clooney r- realizes that he's been broadcasting it that's like the reveal of that that doesn't make sense either it's that, that, no but it's a much more cogent explanation and I kind of wish that was the one they had gone with because <laughs> otherwise yeah it makes be, no well, sense be, it doesn't make sense either because after George Clooney calls him out on that is when he gives his whole big speech on this is why I'm doing it, and it sounds plausible. So let's talk about that now. Um, well, I, 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 almost, I sort of half expected the uh, a sort of inter-movie reference in the Brad Bird filmography where for him to break off at some point. I'm monologuing. Say, you dog, you got me monologuing. <laughs> I guess yeah. there's still some juice in that dialogue cliche. The, the one that I can't stand anymore is the whole, the, the hero... Uh, asks his tech guy a question the tech guy says something and the hero is like was i supposed to understand that because that hasn't been funny since the last time that was funny was in batman begins <laughs> but, uh, yeah and I, I honestly was a little tired of it even then yeah. um but <laughs> and, yeah no no the 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 techno babble well and I, I i did see one interesting twist on that in an issue of moon knight where warren ellis who's a bit infamous in his work for dense well well researched but very dense futurism techno babble um and there's there's a bit where where a doctor who turns out eventually to be the villain does the does this thing and then says i don't expect you to understand any of that um and and the subtext of that on repeat readings is obviously he didn't want the hero to understand that uh um, that he that the the complication was a deliberate obfuscation of of his real actions and his real motives. I mean, I think there's still juice in it if you subvert it like that or play on it with like that. But just the, exactly. but just the straight exactly. thing of oh he's fast, she's weird. That doesn't play for me anymore. It's meta and not in a good way. Yeah. So before I took us okay. on that pet peeve tan tan <laughs> tangent uh, tan tangent tan. Okay. Um. Yeah, we were talking Hugh about uh, Hugh Laurie. Yeah, yeah. So when he explained, so what? So he basically says, so I realized that this tower 
is able to transmit the doomsday prediction into people's... No, I guess it didn't originally do that. So you invented a thing that would see the future and predict the probability of global catastrophe. And he and I banished you for it. Then I discovered that I could use this as an antenna to amplify this prediction in everyone's mind and hopefully get them to get their act together. And it's instead it made them, um, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Is that more or less what he says? <laughs> yes, yes. And it's a bunch of contrivance so that we have a machine that we can break. Yes. But I want to talk about how stupid this character is as a villain, because his motivations make no sense, and especially... And his ends do not justify his means on any level. Because if if he's upset that that the machine became a self-fulfilling prophecy, why didn't he turn it off? <laughs> it's that old quote, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over yeah, again yeah. and expecting a different result. He's, he's supposed to be the leader of a society of smart people. And that's his problem-solving strategy. <laughs> oh, that didn't work. Better keep doing it while, meanwhile, giving up on you and trying to kill anyone who might try to actually suggest something else. Again, it's it, it's all contrivance of, of the plot. <laughs> we need... The plot requires him to have kept at it, and so he did. Well, and, and as you said, it, we needed... We need a cardboard villain. We need a doomsday machine. It's a film that's about invention and innovation and creative problem solving and thinking about outside the box and that yet falls in its third act into such cliched story structures like that is, you know, just biting itself. Just Oh, absolutely agreed. Um I mean, I, I, in, and this is a general thing that I that I observed about the movie, um, which is that it really didn't need all the action no. beats, like all the stuff where the robots catch up to them and there's a fight. Like it, it didn't need any of that. It didn't need a villain. Entropy is a good enough villain. <laughs> you don't need another one. You don't need. Well, I mean, you do need Hugh Laurie. But you don't need him <laughs> for that. Everything needs Hugh Laurie, but you don't you don't need him in that role. And and this is okay. This is a different topic entirely. But the other thing I wanted to say about Hugh Laurie's character is, I was kind of uncomfortable. Like not, I, it didn't lessen my enjoyment of the film, but intellectually, I was uncomfortable with the violence of the film. I I know I know Disney films are more violent than we kind of rosy retrospection and yeah the villains do tend to you know die by being devoured by hyenas or whatever but i <sighs> yeah and to be fair this is from the same man who directed a film in which the villain died by being sucked into a jet turbine oh yeah <laughs> you know you know for kids yeah I, I wasn't uh, like I said. It, it's not it's not so much a gut thing for me, but as an intellect uh, intellectual thing, I don't like it. Um, not a gut level discomfort, but as a 
if this film is for kids, why, if Hugh Laurie's intentions are so noble because he gives us this big speech and I'm like agreeing with a lot of what he's saying in it, but it, then why is he out to k kill everybody who does? It, and then why does he have to get smashed by a giant? Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, no that 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 last bit where he got, where the building fell on him that felt like an unnecessarily vindictive little touch. In part because we've not had enough time with him as a villain. <laughs> like you know, yeah. What whatever else is true, S syndrome was a little shit. Maybe he didn't deserve to be <laughs> to be sucked into a jet turbine by his cape. But we've spent some time with him. We knew we, we knew he was no good. You know, it, it that contrivance, however viscerally disturbing to me then as now, it at least it was kind of earned. <laughs> this was just out of no. Oh no, splat! He's dead. And, it, and it's well, it's another example of the movie falling into pattern and cliche in its third. What are you looking for? Oh, I'm not gonna find it. There was a, a Saturday morning breakfast cereal webcomic, uh, where the the son asks if he can have like a. Uh, robot henchman action figure or something, and then the <laughs> father goes on a tear about how how we uh, how we use robots in 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 media to act out our violent tendencies without having to suffer the guilt of having inflicted harm on a human being. And <laughs> it finally says, "Yeah, but can I have the toy? <laughs> Only if you accept the ethical implications." <laughs> but I can't find it. It ex it exists. Well I remember it exists, but I can't find okay, it specifically. Okay, that's that actually leads me to another thought I had watching this movie, where a after it is revealed that um, that Athena is a little Terminator, and then <laughs> and then I was and then I was starting to worry that it was going to take and and how Clooney and it was starting to hint about how Clooney was upset about the fact that he she turned out to be a robot. And so then it seemed like it was setting up a thing where she was going to turn out to be expendable be because she wasn't a real person. She wasn't a conscious AI and that she would be killed off in the third act. And it turned out she was killed off in the third act. But then the movie kind of said that, no, she actually was a person, which the personhood of AI wasn't really a theme in the movie, so then making yeah, exactly. deal, it was deal the man about it was strange. It was it was the Man of Steel thing where it's throwing around so many themes and it just doesn't... There are some that it just doesn't feel like actually tackling, so it just leaves them dangling. I, I, I wouldn't say... I wouldn't say this movie had a super huge amount of themes. Like, there, there was a half theme there that was kind of stuck on... Well, okay, that 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 wasn't really a theme though. That was a that was a character arc thing about George Clooney's romance with a little girl robot. Yeah, which yeah, yeah. Which yeah. Which they I mean they they did a lot to dance around, but yeah, it was always going to be suspect. The, but, yeah, the question of whether she's conscious or not isn't a thematic concern of the movie. It's a well, no, but given given the his... prevalence of robots yeah. elsewhere, um, you know, even even if they aren't discussing the theme, yeah. um, the presence of so many robots uh, sort of means that whether they like it or not, that question <laughs> runs through a lot of it, especially given the brutality with which they dispatch a lot of those robots. 
it's it's a question that they're not interested in addressing, but it is a question that that they the the audience framed, may very well yeah. be addressing because of the way that they framed it. Yeah. No, that that actually that that does remind me because part of the reason I was thinking it was going to turn into a thing where we are told that actually she's not human and is therefore expendable is because they were blowing up all these other robots and also people vaporizing people but uh, but that they were blowing blowing up all these evil robots supposedly willy-nilly so i was like okay so they well these these uh comic store geek robots there aren't they're not actually people apparently we can just destroy them it's not a big deal um and and then it, the when it turned out Athena was a robot, I was like, okay, so she's going to, like, die and it won't be a big deal. But it was. And so that makes you go back once again to all the violence that was in the first two acts of the movie and go, ah! <laughs> yep, yep. Well, and yeah. And and again, as I've said, you know, we, we can talk about the ethical implications of it. But honestly, all this could have been so easily avoided if they hadn't crammed in those action beats in the first place. If you didn't have those action beats, then you wouldn't have to create expendable, you know, fungible, interchangeable antagonists to to take apart in increasingly elaborate ways. You wouldn't need to even go there. Um at least not to that extent. You wouldn't have that problem if they hadn't decided that this needed another another fight scene in the first place. But if you take out the chase scenes and the action beats and all that stuff, you would have to actually write the second and third acts of this movie. <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't you couldn't My god, you, you're right. What a fool I've been. <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't <laughs> extend this whole as Chipman rightly says, a one act into a feature-length film if you didn't have the needless action scenes. Yeah, well, and, and I mean, this this does make me wonder, and this, I don't know, that I because I didn't really think of this explicitly until now, so I didn't do my research, but it does make me wonder whether they had plans, um, not necessarily explicit, sort of announced plans, but whether they had plans to do, to make this into a Pirates of the Caribbean-style Series. I think actually they may have because I think the only thing I read about this film beforehand was that was Brad Bird making comments about that. I'm not going to try to find the reference, but as closely as I can remember to what he said, I'll give it to you. So okay, that makes sense. I I mean I uh, I oh I do like to defend the the new sort of interconnected serialized mm-hmm. almost TV style story of sort of tentpole movie movie releasing. I'm like, you know what, if you can afford it, that's a, that's a very interesting style of storytelling to try to take on. But we talked last time about decompression. Did we? Um, <laughs> a, in, sto- in storytelling. I did. Um, <laughs> about about stretching out. Um, it was in reference to S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, about okay. stretching out uh, storylines in order to make more installments yeah. or in order to justify a greater number of installments than the story might genuinely merit. Mm-hmm. And so that I, it, I can't help but, but feel perhaps somewhat cynically that part of the reason maybe they felt comfortable writing just a first a feature length first act was because they sort of assumed in the back of their minds that you could do a second and third act in subsequent movies and I would compare this to um, a movie like The Incredibles, which is a perfectly satisfying, self-contained story. And the fact that Brad Bird is now doing a is now writing a sequel 
to it, the sequel may very well be good, but the first movie still stands on its own. I have no idea where I read it. I think it was like a year ago, but I believe somebody asked him or it was brought up in about how this is a sort of like Pirates of the Caribbean adaptation of a of a ride at Disney, so it has the it has the supposed it has the name recognition, but he but, but yeah. how he said it has the name rec- um, recognition and the corporate synergy to tie into it, but since Tomorrowland is just a word that doesn't really attach to any story already, he can do whatever he wants with it, and that was the appeal of the project for him. And also, they talked about how I think he said that they were intentionally setting it up so that it might have future installments, but also I think he said that it would be a self-contained story. And yes, it is a self-contained story, it's just not a very (laughs) good one. (laughs) Fair enough. And I mean, at at the very least, Tomorrowland makes more sense to me as, as, as a justifiable adaptation than Pirates of the Caribbean. I, I mean, I mean, I'm like artistically justifiable. Because, and I, mean, I, th- I think I thought I thought it was very telling that they included the "It's a Small yeah. World" Mark One ride in the opening sequence, because th- that is sort of the most visible reminder, um, you know, still running today of the obviously rather naive, somewhat misguided, heavily stereotypical, but nonetheless, I think sincerely felt. Uh, streak of hopeful multicultural futurism um, that that Walt Disney was going yeah, for, um, and he we went he went about it in a clumsy way, um, certainly. But but that was that was genuinely a part of what he wanted to create, um, and so I yeah I I think that is there's something there. <laughs> um, thematically um and I, I i i'm not sure if there's a story in there but I, I i would have thought there was i would have thought there was a better story in there than this something like tomorrowland which i, I think probably aspired to take on the spirit the intended spirit of what what disney was trying to do with a lot of his theme park like yeah yeah, I could I could see that more than Pirates of the Caribbean, where they also had license to do whatever they wanted because there's also no plot to the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. Um, the, uh, going back to the Hugh Laurie villain, I thought I thought that as a sort of villain ideology was was interesting. Um, you know, in 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 the idea that a good villain always sees I, themselves as the hero. I, he was he was um, kind of convincing me, except I couldn't... What was his ideology? I can't tell if I'm on board with it or not, because I'm not the, sure what it was. Well, I mean... <laughs> okay. This may be as good a time as any to start discussing the ideology of the film. Um, so his, his his idea was essentially to try to do a scared straight right. on on a society-wide level. Um, which Which is an interesting notion. Um, obviously we, we, we know, um, now, uh, from, from research that scared straight doesn't work on an individual level. Um, it's very difficult to, to collect data, nigh impossible to, to collect data on a, on a society wide level. So we don't know whether that plan might actually work. My personal ideological inclination would be to say no. Um, but at the same time, 
as as much as I okay, we're going to go into the ideological thing eventually. So, as much as I like the idea of the optimistic future helping to bring itself about, I tend to believe for myself that to some extent, no matter how good things get, we have to, to some extent, still believe, however wrongly, that things are worse than they've ever been in order in order to convince ourselves to keep working to make it better than it's ever been. Um, there's an old Ray Bradbury story. I believe it's called The Toynbee Convector. Um, yeah, The Toynbee Convector. It was a um, story about a um, man who who sort of traveled into the future and came back saying, you know, it, we, we managed, we did it. We, you know, we, as, as, as a species, we did it. We saved the whales. We, we fixed the environment. We, we brought world peace, you know, and all that. And, and, and the framing device for the story is a sort of newspaper reporter, um, approaching this man in his, in his old age. Um, now that the world has been, um, has, you know, come, come pretty close to the future that he predicted. Um, and of course he reveals that he lied about the whole thing. And it was, it was the beautiful lie that society, that society needed. Mm. Um, and I've, I, I'd always taken issue with that. Yeah. When you started describing this story, I thought the moral was going to be very different. Yeah. Well, no. And at, at that, you see, you see this a lot in, in, because per, personally, I I tend to connect this to the sorts of people who respond to to any social justice complaint with you know the, the, this this is fixing itself, but slowly you know you just need to wait, just need to wait, and and you know society will, will correct itself in that in that regard, and I'm like that that's very easy for you to say that it, that it's getting better, and therefore we can afford to be complacent now. And and so, on on that point, while while I agree that with the movie that that scared straight is a is a bad option, I I personally am of the belief that Al Gore has probably done more to set back the fight to reverse global warming than than any other single pundit, um, be, precisely because of his embrace of a sort of scared straight tactic. But I I think there's also a danger in imagining that an, an optimistic uh, prediction for the future won't lead to a, a sense of complacency. Yeah. See that? Yeah, that's where I thought the story was going when you gave me the first part of the plot. <laughs> that somebody would come from the future, tell us everything was going to be okay, and then the moral would be, well, and then we sat on our laurels and he ruined it for us all. <laughs> no, and that's probably the story <laughs> I would have written had I written well, it with that premise. So, yeah. I... I can agree with the movie with Brad Bird, I guess, that opti that pessimism is self-defeating on an individual level, even though I am a pessimist. <laughs> um, <laughs> but as a society, yeah. Here, I'm glad you brought this up, because this was a big point I wanted to make about the movie. This movie is out to expose the evil of doomsday stories and post-apocalyptic stories 
and all you you Hunger Games and you Terminator because because our culture our pop culture has embraced stories like you that is why we are going to the dogs according to this film according to Brad Bird apparently um and yeah. and so so the this movie is a cautionary tale about cautionary tales sort of i mean the the uh, i mean yeah <sighs> I mean, it's it's certainly true to say that pretty much every dystopia is someone's failed utopia. Um, I I, th- I think. Well, the, the the movie is a cautionary tale because it says if you don't mend your ways and stop making dystopian stories, you'll live in one, and, and that makes it a cautionary tale, even if this movie ends up beats. You know. Yeah. No. But what, but what I'm saying is that I I think in this movie's view um a lot of the dystopian fiction that we that we have um are not cautionary tales um they are to some extent it basically what part of what my complaint is about the way that zombie stories have gone that they're being used as an opportunity to to wallow in and glorify the ruined future uh rather than use it as an opportunity to tell ourselves to fix it i think it i think the movie is a bit muddled in that in that regard in what it thinks of that but but i i'm not sure how it could but it doesn't really specify very well what kind of post-apocalyptic storytelling it doesn't like i guess so yeah Yeah, which given how long hugh laurie talks (laughs) kind of amazing they didn't find a place to fit that in yeah i i wish i had timed that speech because yes there, there is a heck of a lot of talking for a tentpole picture it, it, yeah i mean I, I mean honestly like there were a lot of reviews that complained about it being like a slideshow like a powerpoint presentation a or something with a, a ted talk yeah, yeah. but but like like I, I was watching it, and I was thinking, and throughout it, I was thinking, oh, that's a bit unfair. I mean, there's philosophizing, but like, it isn't really dragging. And then I got to that speech, and I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, I see. Well, I actually don't. I actually don't mind that the movie. I mean, we haven't been trained as theater goers to sit that long and listen to somebody explain his undermined underpinning philosophy undermining the Freudian slip. um <laughs> i think I it think, may well be that as well i yeah. think on stage though the rules would be very different so it's kind of a it kind of has to do with our expectations for the medium well and i think the movie has some slightly warped ideas about our, what our expectations for the medium <laughs> is hence, hence all the fight scenes yeah. Uh, to a large extent, I think it mm-hmm. there there may have been some assumption that it wouldn't be able to hold our interest unless they were destroying robots every every few minutes. When somebody sits down to tell us to give us a big speech of whatnot that we're going to need, we we as moviegoers ask that it do something like Deathly Hallows Part One did with, with the do something clever and creative. Like the that whole shadow puppet, the thing. animated sequence yeah. that illustrated the the, the three that brothers' holds our story. attention yeah, yeah. while it's giving us an info dump, you know. And, and yeah, and I, oh, I loved I loved Dan Olson's description because <laughs> he, he 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 was talking about the the clumsy way exposition was handled in Man of Steel, and he said the plot stops dead completely dead three times for characters to give us info dumps about the history of Krypton, you know. <laughs> Superman's dad even prepared a slideshow for his. <laughs> yes. 
And I, and I, was, <laughs> yes, I remember that. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, that that's basically what that was. <laughs> and I, I'm 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 one of the people who who don't who doesn't find, for example, Nolan dialogue as as insufferable as some people do when it starts getting philosophizy. Um, mm. I, I, I tend to go for that sort of thing, but the Hugh Laurie speech was the breaking point, <laughs> even for me, where I was just like, okay, this is, this is genuinely pulling me out of the experience. <laughs> it, 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 it made me say, oh, yeah, this is quite a unusually long speech for a film, but I'm not sure that my resistance to that is an actual resistance to that as an artistic thing or if i've just been you know brainwashed as a consumer of media to say that no a film must change locations every 30 seconds or 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 else i will lose interest is it is that is that is that reaction to it that gut reaction to oh this is a long speech is that a product of the way that our attention spans as filmgoers have been shortened. But I talked in one of my videos about how I how much I liked the sort of big exposition dump at the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, how oh, without yeah. being really really overbearing with it, it introduced enough visual variety, enough interesting interplay between the perspectives of the different characters, and enough just blatant visual aids that. That what 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 might might otherwise have been a very dull lecture on ancient Egyptian artifacts or ancient ancient Hebrew artifacts, like suddenly became became compelling. Um, and you don't necessarily need blowing up robots and a collapsing doomsday telegraphing antenna for that. You you know um, so it there are different directions in which you can go too far, and I I think uh, this movie charted out several of those directions <laughs> um we've we've gone to many places i wanted to and places i had no idea we were going to go but we still haven't talked about <laughs> how this should go <laughs> <laughs> we we still haven't uh really talked about okay is brad bird a elitist objectivist <laughs> whatever i mean I'm, I'm a little skeptical of calling it um soft objectivism i think is probably my favorite formulation of that sentiment in that i i feel like it's very typical of of the tendency to try to cram any idea you we we must fit this into one of the existing <laughs> ideological paradigms <laughs> cram it in there and so so you know i i've the the interpretation that some people have of of the Incredibles in that regard is is a bit of a reach. There's something there, but I think it's a bit of a reach. As Chipman pointed out, this if he was going to allay those those accusations, this was probably not the movie to make. <laughs> well, this is interesting. It's been too long since I've seen the Incredibles, so I don't think it was particularly complex. And from what I remember, I can definitely see that argument in relation to the Incredibles. But until I read Chipman's thing, I was like, why did, why did people say this looked like Ayn Rand? And then when he said it's the, well, it's the Alice shrugged plot of a young girl finding a, or a woman finding a guy who takes her to a, 
super industrialist hideaway. I'm like, okay, yeah, that, yeah, that's, I can see that as a plot parallel. <laughs> but j just coming out of the movie, I was kind of like, why did people have that take on it exactly? And now I, yeah. So I don't know. I, I can kind of see it more now, but, um, the, the society, the sort of Tomorrowland portrayed here, seemed in some ways to sort of resemble a weird anarcho-syndicalist kind of, kind of setup. Okay. Um, and certainly there was there was not there was there was there was a, a lot of emphasis on altruism, or a lot at least not not much emphasis on on doing this in your own in your own self-interest yeah. um, for mm -hmm. for profit, yeah. um, which which would tend perhaps deliberately to um to ameliorate uh, any any accusations in a uh, randian direction yeah but the idea of, of sort of getting together to do this for its own sake there 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 were notes of of that sort of soft objectivism but also strong notes of the sort of more zootopia everyone to their best advantage and and so on uh that it yeah i i'm reluctant to pigeonhole it quite like that and obviously both of those do carry a certain uh heavy element of determinism which i could definitely see making people uncomfortable myself included to some extent so <laughs> what did you think? Let, let's I'm let's go into that. So, sorry. What? So. Uh, how, how is this determinist? I mean, you, that the idea the the idea in this case that you don't you you are great. It that greatness is not necessarily something that you do, but something that you are. I never says it, but I could see people thinking that it implies it. Uh, yeah, I can see that in this film too. Oh, that was yeah. That was another thing in this movie. I I'm glad. You reminded me of to mention the where where kind of tries to play with the chosen one idea. Well, wait, I was like the last person you looked up. You there were other people besides me, but, <laughs> but 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 then in the second and third act they go to say, no, you are the chosen one. You, Casey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's trying to have your cake and eat it yeah, too. With that. Yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> and and as as paradoxically and tragically interesting as as it kind of is that in this case the chosen one is a girl obviously it undermines loses that. points afterwards because because again it's actually george clooney's story so well it's interesting because as much as i've ranted this past hour about how conventional the plotting becomes it's still even even by the standards of the conventional plot the structure is a mess because you can't tell, I couldn't tell watching it what, at what point the climax happened, because it looked like there was a climax there, but when Hugh Laurie died, but then it still wasn't over because they had to destroy the machine. And, yeah, no, and, when they went to destroy the machine, I, all I could think was that was sudden. Like that, that like, oh, they're going to destroy it and, and this will be over? You couldn't tell... Where the point was that now the story is over and now we're in the denouement. But the the idea of the of the being caught in between two worlds, and you you try to walk around in one and then you end up smacking into a wall in the other is an idea I had actually had just completely independently of this movie years ago, and been wanting to work into a story. 
And I hate that this movie takes that idea and does not play up its potential. And I kind of felt that way about the, like the the little future visions where they say, "Oh, the uh, the for somehow the tachyon particles make you see a few seconds into your, into your future." But like, I don't think it does enough with it. There's one bit where it uses it in a clever way, um, and the rest of the time yeah. it's just a distraction. Mm-hmm. I was. I was going to ask you about that because I feel like that was quoted from something else, but I can't think what. Yeah, I don't know. No, no, no. Oh, I, oh, oh, I know what oh, it is. I know what okay. it is. It's payday. It's that. It's that. Uh, uh, John Woo movie starring not Boston guy. What's his name? The new Batman. Ben Affleck. <laughs> yes. Bo- Boston guy. That's his. That's. <laughs> That's his uh, new superhero alter ego. <laughs> Boston guy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, I I saw uh, yeah, I saw large parts of Payday on TV when I was in college and like fixing dinner for myself. Mm. And there's a and there's a bit because in Payday he, he, it's and it's a and a it's like a bastardization of a Philip K Dick of course. Yeah. yeah. As as these blockbuster sci-fi things are. Yes, um, yes. But, uh, but yeah, in the, it, so Ben Affleck, or Boston guy to the rescue, yeah. um, has <laughs> he has invented a, uh, a machine that will show him the future, which allows him to plant, and then he gets his brain wiped, but because he's seen the future, he's planted clues for himself to follow, the, to allow him to destroy the machine that allows him to, See the future. That no, actually, that film is totally related to Tomorrowland. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, yeah, because I forget how it goes down. But he. Uh... Oh my god! <laughs> T- Tomorrowland so totally stole the plot of Payday. <laughs> okay, I'm I'm wikiing this to confirm this. <laughs> Paycheck, not Payday. The okay. title is very bad. Doesn't relate to the movie very well okay yeah no um, that's that makes it yeah that makes it sound like a comedy yeah well because there's this weird comedic element at the end where he's also won himself the lottery um but uh <laughs> which is apparently right. where the title of the movie comes from i didn't see the very beginning that's, of the movie but that isn't but, a paycheck yeah, no <laughs> well that makes no sense <laughs> oh the uh, appar- okay, apparently the Philip K. Dick story was of the, of that name, so maybe that's why they kept that as the title. But um, yeah, but he was on drugs all the time. Well, Just take the liberty. He he was also a demented genius, but yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, no, no, I was I was like, feel free to question some of his decisions, even if you even if you accept his more brilliant ideas. Don't feel okay. So he's invented a device that can predict future events. But the resultant doomsday visions ultimately lead to a series of self-fulfilling prophecies resulting in financial panic, political strife, and America launching a preemptive nuclear strike. Yes, it's he's invented okay, a machine yeah, that can yeah. see the future, which leads to self-fulfilling prophecies, and therefore he must just and he realizes he must destroy his own machine. And that's the plot of payday. Or paycheck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, 
This emphasizes two things. First, yes, every big budget science fiction story of the last few decades it's was Phil- genuinely written by Philip K. Yes. first. And second, Paycheck is an even more stupid title than we thought, so... <laughs> And third, Tomorrowland is an even more derivative film than I realized at the beginning. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, are we are we nearing the point where we sign off? Uh, did, did you have anything else to say about Tomorrowland? Otherwise, I, had I think we one, are. I, I had one thing I wanted to add. Please, um, please just do. At the, at the end, because I just randomly um, happened today to be listening to an old uh, NPR interview with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Okay. Um, and it, it struck me as very relevant to this because he was talking about the inspirational influence that the space race had on the, the future scientists of his generation mm-hmm. who, who saw this stuff happen as kids and how we need something else like that if we're, if we're going to take the, the next step in, in expanding our, our horizons hopefully space words as a species and uh and it 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 reminded me of this because of the you know dismantling of the shuttle launch pad and and all that and how casey is constantly trying to stave off the inevitable there um but it neil degrasse tyson managed to express i think a lot of what this movie (laughs) wanted to express just off the cuff in an interview and i i I'm not sure what that says about this movie other than it possibly needed to be in a different medium entirely. <laughs> but I think there is something there is something there. When when Neil deGrasse Tyson was was talking about this, it 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 that idea came home to me in a way that it didn't or that if it did it became muddled up with all the other ancillary stuff. You know, Britt Robertson says so- says what I've wanted to say at many times in my life about the very same things. Okay, yes, I see that we're headed towards dystopia or whatever, but what should we do about it? Which is yes. what we need more more books and films and media of all and art of all types offering us potential solutions to our problems. And that's not something that Tomorrowland does. It just says no. we need people to offer solutions, but it doesn't offer solutions yeah it just tells us that we're bad for being pessimists which is not there was an asimov quote that i wanted to paraphrase a bit um in in response to this because this is something i've I've said in in response to a lot of problems and climate change in particular If, if if it is through knowledge that we have gotten into this problem it is not through ignorance that we will get out of it in other in other words, uh, the this, the solution is not to go backwards; it is to go further forwards. Again, something I wish that Tomorrowland had engaged with more. There are a lot of things that it start, a lot of paths it starts on, but in but the, what I was, I guess, what I was, the point I was trying to get at with the happy ending is that yeah, they've broken the doomsday machine, so the sort of contrived big bad of this storyline has been defeated, but what does that imply for where the world is now? Not much. And that, and that, and that's why I, that's part of what I suspect why I like that final montage so much, because it actually implied hope and movement forward um, in a way that the denouement of the plot completely failed to. So I really enjoyed myself a whole lot 
watching this movie, even as I was very aware throughout of its giant flaws. So, uh, well, if you've listened this far in our podcasts, oh, listeners that theoretically exist, you, you, <laughs> you, you may think you may not need to see this movie, and you may be right. So I wish we had put a spoiler warning at the top. But uh, <laughs> Oh, I, I said something, but I'll put something in the description. Because yeah. I'm actually really glad I went to see it. I enjoyed myself a lot, just not necessarily for reasons of it being a fantastic film. Now, there are movies that I feel that way yeah. about as well. It's... You know that that are worth seeing, even if they're not great art. Uh, on th- this, this is also how I felt a lot about Clouds of Sils, Sils Maria. I enjoyed myself a lot watching that film. Was it a particularly great film? Uh, <laughs> but I don't have time to go into that. <laughs> Different another day. Um. <laughs> so, uh, are, uh, on that note, are we going <laughs> to? I think we're going to sign off here. Okay. <laughs> Well, uh, keep you in suspense. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Nope. Well, that's that's about it for that. So I am Andrew Stefan Melnick. You can find me in the usual places. Same here, except that my name is Colin Gardner, and your place um. is nowhere. Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> you don't have a blog. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, bye. Bye. <laughs>